0: and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this two-part series, we're speaking with Steven Manmeter, a financial planner, portfolio manager, and an increasingly recognized commentator on macroeconomics and the global financial system. He's been a guest on Real Vision and Macro Voices multiple times, sharing his approach to analyzing and capitalizing on market opportunities. In part one, we hear about his view on the markets and how they apply to operating small businesses. One message is clear, and that's that debt or leverage is a slippery slope and that it needs to be managed wisely. It's fascinating for me that along with building a successful financial management business, He's developed a dedicated following of retail and institutional investors who follow his YouTube channel, or what he calls the Macro Show. The story behind this may seem simple, but the opportunities that have come from him committing to his form of social media have been phenomenal. You can follow Steve's work along with 50,000 other viewers on YouTube. Be sure to check out his show. The links are in the show notes. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services, and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Enjoy this episode and be sure to tune into part two as this interview did go long. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Thanks for having me. Well, one, I'm really happy we connected and, and we reached out to see if you'd come on because the pre-call we had and started discussing, you know, so many different topics. I just, I knew that this was going to be a, a, I think this is going to be a really interesting interview. We'll let the listeners decide. But, What's best is if you can kick us off with some background on yourself. You've had a really interesting career and especially with the stuff you're doing now. So what do you say I'll let you uh, give the audience a bit of your background and then we'll dive into our conversation. Sure. Yeah, I've been a, you know, what we'll call financial
1: planner for this is my
0: 19th year, almost 20.
1: I had no expectations for getting into this business. The true story is I was in computer networking and network administration. I ended up getting divorced. My dad had retired and was just starting to get into financial planning said, hey, I could use your help. There was zero expectation that the business was going to become anything or I was even going to stay in it. I think he had like 10 or 15 clients at a time. And, uh, you know, we've always worked well together. And, you know, we built a business, you know, one client at a time. I've become a CFP. i designed portfolios now. I mean, I've really just embraced it, you know, as a kid. You know, there's things that your parents tell you that, you know, sometimes have a really big impact. And my dad... You know, he never really went to college. He took a couple of classes at USC. My mom has an AA degree. And so I was really the first you know, one to go through and get a 40 degree. And, you know, he always told me, you know, he says, Steve, I don't, I don't care what you do in life. You know, if you want to be a trash man, that's cool. He said, just be the best trash man you can be. And he didn't say be the best at whatever it is you're gonna do. He said, be the best you can be. You know, whatever that it means, whatever that is. And as a kid, you know, it didn't impact me till later. And when I got in this business and you're, you're self-employed, you know, you you start thinking is how can I be better? And what's really great about the financial planning industry or the investment management industry is you're never right for long. If you are, you know, you'll be wrong and people will remind you about that really quickly because no one's right all the time. So there's, you know, there's this huge runway out there to always be better. And that's something I kind of just modeled my life is, is, you know, how can I be better? And, Instead of you know falling on the sword when I'm got something wrong, how can I learn from? It to well, be that
0: you got to be doing something right because I mean, what I didn't realize was how your world of financial planning and the work you did with your newsletters and then social media and now being a multiple appearance on the preeminent financial show, Real Vision. I mean, you're a guest there multiple times now, and you're doing something right there, man.
1: Well, I, I'll argue that I have a really phenomenal fan base. You know, when I started the YouTube show, you know, I, I had no expectations for what. In fact, a lot of people don't even know how the YouTube show started. And one of the things, you know, as as I started managing money, you know, because when you start out, you're in this industry, unless you're sponsored by someone who will work in a, a firm where there's a lot of you know, flow of clients, you're you're in a transactional business. So You're selling a lot more insurance type products because. You know, when you're charging a fee, you don't make enough money starting out to even put food on the table. And so as I started managing money, I started looking at, like, what are other successful people doing? And they would write, you know, an annual or quarterly letter to their clients. So I thought, well, that's cool. I'm going to start doing that. And, you know, I started emailing that out. And then I remember one day I got an industry magazine. And it, there was an article and I don't normally like industry magazines, but there's an article about like the things that, you know, why people get fired. And I'm like, oh, I really want to know that. You know, what, what are the things? And the number one thing was lack of communication and it, it stuck with me. You know, performance was like number three or four. People really want to know what you think, where you're at and hey, if things are wrong, how are we going to fix that? And so that graduated into a monthly email and then a weekly email. And then people said, I still don't understand that. And I thought, well, how do I improve upon that? And I started doing video and I, I started hosting these videos on a private server and they were terrible. I mean, of course they were bad. I mean, not a lot of people watched them and but they were terrible, but I kept working at it because a few people watched it and a few people found it valuable. And from a business perspective, you know what happens is you get a lot of people that want to call on a regular basis and find out, well, what's going on? And that well, how can I alleviate these repetitive questions, because what you find out is a question, Corey, that you have, you know, well, Charles might have, and and Bob might have, and so it's like, well, it's not that I didn't mind talking to people, it was, well, how do I, you know, anticipate that question and get them the answer ahead of time, so that way, when they do call, we're talking about something maybe completely different, Hmm. and so I started doing video, and they were terrible. But people watched and people said there was value there. And so I just started getting better. My dad, you know, who's in the industry said, you, I can't watch your stuff. It's terrible. And as a kid, you never want to hear that from your parent. But the other side, it's a great feedback because, you know, hey, these are bad. And so the reason I ended up getting on YouTube is I was you know, reviewing my finances for the business. And this is something I think a lot of business owners really don't do that they should do especially small or mid-sized businesses, you gotta look at where your cash flow is going. And I thought, well, I can see how many people are watching this and I see what I'm spending to host on this private server. And, and the math doesn't add up. And, and I have this philosophy that if I'm spending money on something and I, I'm not sure I'm getting the value out of it, I can give myself a chance to change it. And if I really miss it, I think you can always go back. Hmm. And so I said, well, let's go on to YouTube, which from a business perspective, people say, do not do. And why do they tell you that? Because there's ads especially when you're new, you're going to get ads put on your channel. And at the end, it's going to recommend going to other places. And, and from you said you should never do that. But my view was, I'm just doing this to communicate to my clients. Maybe a few other people will watch. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, 1,500 people started watching. And that's really those 1,500 people changed this whole show. It was It was my audience. It was the feedback from them you know, to say, you can, you know, this is not good. You can do better. You can do that. I mean, and I listen. And when you go onto YouTube because you get a lot of anonymous comments and you'll get emails from addresses that, you you know, are not real. People will be brutally honest with you hmm. and you have these fans that, that believe in you and they want to see if you'll grow. And if you're willing to grow and take some constructive criticism, they'll support you. If you're not, they'll walk.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't think about that feedback loop that comes from your fan base and the fact that it's like, I think we all want to be, we all want to support the underdog in a way. I think it's almost, almost human nature, right? And you find somebody, you find them early and you kind of like that what's there. And then you share a comment of sorts and then things get a little better, a little better. And you start to get this real, you know, this strong convicted base of people who are really into what you do. And You know, I just want to tie this over to the world we work in and in junior public market companies. And what I'm seeing is there's a few CEOs who are daring to go out there and put themselves out there on a more regular basis and use social media to do this. And you're starting to see that same kind of thing. But I mean, look, I do want to talk social media more with you because among many topics, because I think it's been incredible how you've been able to grow from it and what it's done for you.
1: Yeah, so what did I want? Why did the show go from this client communication to kind of what it is now? And and I think this is something business owners really should do. Is you gotta look out in the market and see where there's gaps. And can you fill? Do you wanna fill? Is it something important to you? And, and what I wanted. And you look at real vision, macro voices, and a lot of the you know, these big, you know top A-list, you know, programs that you can subscribe to or, you know, just listen to like Macro Voices is free, is they're not going to cover the day-to-day stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. they're covering broad topics with, you know, great, phenomenal guests. And I wanted to go, I don't know, hey, what does this Redbook Weekly Retail Sales Data mean? You know, is there someone out there that's going to talk about that? And what I found out is, and nobody was really talking about the day-to-day stuff. Now that you could subscribe to people that will cover some of the stuff, I uh, thought, you know what, this is really interesting to me. I want to know more about how these signals and this data kind of fits into the macro picture. And so I thought, well, maybe a few other people, you know, like me, would. And my view was really simple: was once I show people where the data is at and I give them my opinion, they'll stop watching. That was what I thought would happen. Hmm. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Hmm. You know, so what actually happened is, you know, there are people that started to follow along with my, my thesis and my narrative, and they really liked how I did that. And then you have, you know, a large number of detractors, and they will beat you up. They will be very vocal. They're, yeah, that's what they want. Is they want to see, you know, if you've got the staying power. And it's hard to go through and read the comments and find out that, you know, the people that are the most vocal are generally ones that don't like you
0: yeah i you know i <laughs> I remember I remember getting the first kind of hate comment on one of our episodes, and I thought to myself, well, I guess I'm doing something right here Even in the sense that you know somebody's coming forward to be you know all right, somebody's listening and but it can be a nice feedback loop too.
1: It is because they do really give you valuable feedback, and then you get you know messages from people. And I've had people say, you know, I've been watching for years. While I send you a note saying, hey, I really appreciate you. And you know, sometimes, and I write back. I'm like, hey, you know, I really appreciate you too. And you know, and having you as a fan because you don't get those comments as often, but you get them in the terms of you see, wow, there's wow, ten thousand people actually watch this. And you know, I remember when like a hundred people. Wow, that's really yeah. amazing. But you know they're watching you and they believe in you and they're supporting you. They're not always telling you. And, and, and I think that's generally true in life, right? I mean, you hear people say like, how can my boss never give me positive feedback? And I'll say, well, that was your paycheck. you know." But you always told me when I was doing something wrong. Hmm. And we live in a society where it's easier to tell people, hey, you know what, I don't like the way you look. I don't like the way this sounds. I don't like the wood paneling in your background. I don't like this, you got that call wrong and there's not as many people that'll reach out and say hey you know you're doing a great job and i try to do that you know to other people if i if i really think someone's doing great and even if it's an interview done, i might write it back hey you know hey thanks Corey. you know that was i thought that was really great even if no one else thinks it's good i really enjoyed it and you know that really encourages people and what i hope is if people are going onto social media they don't to understand they're going to get a lot of negative comments is how do you manage you know, right. my dad and my wife are really following by my comments now. It got to the point where it was so negative that I've had to take a step back from it. But my wife and my dad—they read—they give me feedback, and you know, my dad's like, "Hey, you know, you're you're getting a lot more positive comments versus negative," and and this is when it shifted, and and that really encourages you. But it's going to be tough to get those negative comments.
0: You know what? You, I'm just noting here is you've. It sounds like you've intentionally. Put a a barrier between those comments and yourself, but it still allowed somebody to filter them for you. Because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff in there too, where it just becomes a little bit much. You're like, oh, geez.
1: Well, originally I made a point to hit the comments and try to respond to as many people as possible, and it became unmanageable. Just in terms, you know, when you get five or six hundred comments, and you're running a business and you know, my wife had been through a very major surgery, two thirds of her back is, you know, metal now. And oh, wow. then I found out, you know, what was things that were wrong with me during the pandemic and you're trying to adapt to the pandemic. You realize there's only so much of yourself you can give it. And if you're going to go into an arena and people are throwing, you know, arrows and stones at you, at some point you're like, you know what, like, how do I separate the negative from the positive? Because there, there is a point where you realize like, you know, I know my shows now where I want it to be. I know, you know, my fans. This is what they want it to be. I don't know that I'll ever have a hundred thousand followers or any of that. I'm not worried about that so much. It's how do you manage that negative emotion that you go to bed at night and you see and hear all those negative comments? It's just not good. Mm. It's not good for your mental health. And I think there's you have to have some management of that. And social media will beat you up and spit you out. But if you can manage that. You know, negative health to your brain. Then you can, you know, you, to some degree, you have to be willing to put the blinders on and say, I'm not going to listen to those people. Social I don't, media, they have a valid comment like, hey, you know, you don't realize, but this is wrong, and you're an idiot. Well, I got to cut out that you're an idiot. I'm like, all right, well, maybe there's some legitimate
0: issue there that I need to address in future shows and improvement. I got you on that, and you know, it just struck me kind of. Social media is a bit like fast food. You know, everything in moderation, right? But what I want to ask is is I mean your focus is on the world of macroeconomics is a lot of what you discuss and and the macro trends that are happening and you've spoken with some you know remarkable names out there some of the the big brains in the industry if you will how can you paint a picture of what's happening now and how this applies to business owners you know whether you're a public business or private business and and things that are happening, I mean fast and cheap money and you know and, and conflicting stats here and there and all this kind of stuff. what can you paint a picture for us?
1: Yeah, I think business owners, they should be looking at the macro landscape. I mean, whether it, maybe it's not say tuning in a show like mine there three days a week but they need to be at pulse with it because they're making business decisions. I mean, I think we all are, you know, if I'm going to put on an ad or I'm going to commit money out to something or hire people, or, or even maybe say, I'm going to take a shot at this. Something I've, you know, part of the industry. I've never thought about, you know, being a competitor. I'm going to go out there. If you don't know what the macro landscape is and where the probabilities lie, like, you can find yourself in a, in a world of hurt. And even in my own practice, I, you know, one thing that shaped how I've handled my own money in my own business is hearing from other business owners. And they would come in from you know the classes I taught and I would hear almost the same story over and over again. And it was scary, Corey, because what I would hear is people say, you know, I put 10, 20 years into building this business, blood, sweat and tears, you know, living off the of mac and cheese and you know, crammed into a small home. And finally, I hit it big, right? Everything clicked and the business took off. And then you're like, oh, cool, well, what, what did you do next? Well, I bought, you know, I promised my wife the big house and the jewelry. And I, I promised the kids, I sent them to private schools and buy them cars. And, and we go on these great vacations because for years we didn't do anything. We had nothing. And then you find out they are leveraged to the hilt. Because you're thinking at this point, like, all right, man, I bet this person's got, you know, a couple million dollars saved in cash. And, okay, I mean, and they're like, why are they here talking to me? And it's like, well, I got... You know 50 grand in my in my self-employed plan. I'm like, what? Like you're making 300 some thousand a year, you're spending four, your business model tells you that you're gonna grow at 20 some percent a year, which I'm thinking is totally unsustainable. You know, and they're and they're modeling this out. And the people that work for them are telling, me you're gonna be making a million, two million a year. And then and, and they're living and they're spending because they sacrifice. And then a recession comes along. And they can get by for three months because they don't really think it's a recession, right? I mean, they've got some resources. And then next thing you know, their mortgage mortgaging their house and mortgaging their property. I mean, all the stuff they bought is getting leaned out because they need cash. And then six plus months, layoffs. This is getting sold. That's getting sold. And then a year, there's no way. Can't survive. You know, next thing you know, fire sales on things, things are getting dumped and, if they're lucky, they have a shell of what they started with to rebuild from. In a lot of cases, they lose it all. I mean, hmm. I, I can't tell you how many people I met. I lost it all. And now I'm starting over. I'm not hiring people. I'm self-employed. I got this new idea. And it's like, I was going to retire when I was like mid fifties, maybe 60, at latest. now when are you retire 70, if I'm lucky, I have nothing. Wow. I have social security. So that's the mistake business owners make is they don't reserve cash. They don't you know, plan for an emergency and they don't have staying power.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, debt is such a, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? And I think especially when, you know, you're looking to grow, you think about the macro and you say, okay, well, well, if you don't look at the macro and you kind of just go blindly and say, we're just going to build then, and you take on more debt than you can and and numbers start coming in, but you, you know, you're not able to, to maintain a good balance sheet. It's, yeah, before you know it, you're overextended and it doesn't give you a lot of staying power. So, is that what you're seeing now? Like more and more? Like what are you seeing now? What are what are you concerned about, and what are you optimistic about?
1: Well, there's way too much debt, I and mean, businesses are massively over leveraged. There's no question. But what, let me tell you one a really great story of some another thing that impacted me and how you know, why I have this view and why I see this, and I think, oh man, this is bad news. Is somewhere I read that businesses that survive a recession. Now you think about that, like, what do you mean survive a recession? It's because your competition is going out of business. And this is a survivor recession and have they will get more business because they were surviving mm. Businesses that survive a recession and have money to advertise that they effectively survive the recession. Hey, I'm a survivor. in fact that, hey, I'm out running ads because I'm still here. Boom. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. like So instead of, you know, at these late expansions when credit's cheap and and business is booming, you know, what you see is business owners are just spending my like crazy, right? Because they think it's never ending. What they should be doing is saying, all right, let's look over our expenses. What can we cut that we're not using? What staff do we have that maybe we don't need? How can I start piling up some money? Because really the success in terms of staying power is, how do I stay? How if I'm still alive and my competition's out of business? I win. I'm because how do I win? I'm getting their clients, and what am I going to pay for?
0: Nothing. Mm. They, you know, they're what, gonna you know what? You know what? I find interesting there, and, and this is something that I've started to be much more cognizant about, and identified in a lot of the interviews is the difference between those who think short term and those who really think long term. And some of the most successful people I've seen think well into you know 10 years into the future and then just work back from there and well, are often such contrarians Yep, yeah, i get a lot of black because my
1: macro views are three to five years in length and people like that is absurd you're an idiot man. it's like yeah well it's kind of served me well and i always keep saying i will be the last missing. when hmm. all is gone well i'll be here you know you because what, what do we tell people i mean in my business some people like, you can have six months of cash i don't want to have six months of cash I mean, we found out in the pandemic, people didn't even have a couple of weeks. What should a business have? A year? Can you sustain your business for a year and make the decision? You know, I worked in the mortgage industry in my early years as a computer networking, and there's a relatively small, you know, small to mid sized firm. What was really neat about it is I had direct access to the CEO and, you know, on a regular basis, you know, which I was two doors down from him. And you know, he was a kind of hands on guy. And I remember, that when things got bad, he would fire me. No questions asked. And I remember like, and in my position, there was only two of us, right? You gotta have your computers, right? So I wasn't worried, I wasn't going, but I finally had the courage to start asking these questions, you know, because he had offices outside of the area and you know, we were like in Las Vegas and he had a private airplane and we'd fly there. And so I had a chance to, you know, he's like, it's cheaper for me to fly you there, meet with the people and you go fix the things and then we'll come home. And so I, you know, finally got, you know, the courage. A lot of people are are afraid to ask these questions. It's like, man, so why do you do this? He's like, because, man, Steve, I wouldn't be in business. You know, the mortgage industry ebbs and flows. And when things drop, you've got to get rid of people. They're your most expensive costs. And he's like, if you have an emotional attachment to them, you're going to be a casualty. And he's like, go look around when things get bad and you'll see these mortgage shops close. Boom, boom. All. I mean, he's right. So he's like, you've got to be willing to do that. And a lot of businesses aren't willing to make those hard decisions. And, he, and he's like, look, I know I lay off good people and I try to do it. So maybe they'll come back and know that, Hey, I, I, I just have no choice. Right. A lot of businesses don't have the cash to get through a hard time. They don't think it's going to last.
0: So question I have, we touched on this and we're just getting fired up before we hit record was, are we in a recession? And what does it look like? Because I mean, from what I can see, Aside from the restaurant business and the hospitality industry, everything is just going through the roof. And like we're busier than we've ever been. So what's happening? Or is this just uh, just my little part of the world?
1: You know, we are absolutely in a recession. There's no question. It doesn't look like an global recession because you have certain businesses that are doing really well. And what is a really easy way to strip this out is, let's take the stock market, cut the price of stocks in half, and then you'll feel a real recession. Because Hmm. there's certain people that have a lot of assets, and they don't feel it. But you have 60 million people on a right now, I guarantee you they feel it. You know, there's people out there not paying rents, not paying mortgages, not paying bills, don't have the money, they feel it. So you have this very kind of weird recession that once the stock market does have its, you know, end its run, then you're gonna find out that all the spending is going away. And there are some businesses out there that are adapting to they were kind of aware we're in a recession. Now. I don't know if everyone really believes that entirely, but they're more adapting to the pandemic. And they're doing kind of what we talked about is you got to adapt, right? So what are they doing? They're on it. And that's something you should do. So you know, when you look at these late cycles and as a business, and I did this during the you know the pandemic, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's terrible as a business. For me to have an uninterrupted period of, you know, because there's a, you know, you get that initial call, the market's crashing, you know, you, you're going to get a follow call once the call died because people realize I'm stuck at home and I already, you know, he's doing his videos and I can just watch that, which was great because more people started watching my videos that, you know, my clients did. So I was already an automated mindset to begin with. And I went through here and it's like, what can we trim? What can we tell? What can we stream? What can we do? Because I knew my competition was sitting home playing with their kids, playing on their Xbox, watching Netflix, whatever they were doing. They weren't, they were thinking, oh, we're just going to be right back to normal in a month or two. And I knew we were not going back to normal. How can I embrace it? You know, how do I, you know, get the Zoom thing figured out and all this other stuff that they're going to be taking months to figure out? I got to do this now Hmm. and give myself an advantage. I told that to my wife's youngest. I said, look, he wants to get in the industry. He's very, you know, self employed, entrepreneurial mindset. I said, look, when everyone else is partying, you have to be getting ahead. And if you're behind on something now, it's okay. Don't worry. They'll goof off and you need to take any advantage you can to get ahead. So when everyone's, you know, goofing around, you should be reading books. You should be studying. You should be finding ways, you know, get ahead on your classes for the next semester, even though they're close right now. Yeah. You, and that's what someone who's self-employed needs to do. It's like whatever you know. When life throws you a lemon, you better figure out a way to make lemonade and fast. Because your competition is just going to eat the lemon, and they're not going to know why. Yeah, and I said this. I'm going to take this huge advantage. So when everyone came back, started coming back, yeah, you know, I was way ahead. You know? huh. And you think about businesses right now. So what, what are they doing? You know, their their client base is said, finally I'm ready to start using my cell phone to do things. Right? I mean, a lot of people, oh never you. I'm never going to download these apps. I'm never going to do it. Now they're out out these people will. And so you're seeing this whole segment of the economy where it's kind of booming because businesses are doing the thing they should have been doing before, but right. where all that dries up. And when the stimulus money passes through the system, you're going to see a whole different economy.
0: That's a great point. And I want to get into that is the amount of money that is being put out there. And I, we were talking about this yesterday, something like, 20% of the currency, the U.S. currency in circulation now was printed in the last 24 months. And to me, that is absolutely shocking. And so this is going to have some implications. What do you think?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting because Fed can't print money. So there's this whole view that we're printing money, but we can't. The Fed has zero authority to do that. They, they're they a lender, not, they're not a printer. I mean, yeah, you could, you could argue that they do kind of manage the amount of, Physical currency, but they're not printing it. I mean, they, okay. I mean, since they're not conjuring out thin air, they're just meeting the demand of the market, saying, "Hey, we need physical currency," and they handle that process. But you look at these money supply aggregates, right? The M ones so I don't really look at the M one. I look at the M two, the money supply. Say, wow, this thing just went—you know—went vertical, man. You know, I mean, just straight up. Probably got that quote wrong, but anyways, it went yeah. straight
0: well, up. Well, if it was a, if it was a stock chart, I'd be stoked to be on it. Right. Exactly. So the question then is,
1: well. If we're not bringing money, where did this money come from? Well, the simple answer is it came from non-M2 sources. Wait, what? So the M2 is U.S., right? You know, deposits, currencies, U.S. But the U.S. government itself borrows from outside the country. So Hmm. if we're borrowing, say, from the Bank of Japan, well, we don't count the Bank of Japan in our M2. So what happened during the pandemic? We borrowed a lot of money. We borrowed a ton of money and then we did something else that was interesting. We gave it to people. And what did they do? They deposited it into their banking, into the banking system, and it gets count and now it gets counted as the M2. So all we did was, you know, take, you know, say furniture outside your house and we put it inside your house. And we're like, oh my God, there's new furniture. Like no, nah, it was just <laughs> over there. Like we it was just outside your home. It was at the store that wasn't counted as your house.
0: So, so then am I thinking of this wrong? Am I approaching my kind of analysis of this wrong in the sense that I thought that the money supply in the US had gone up, you know, just trillions of dollars almost overnight, as in the equivalent of printing money, but it hasn't, it's basically been a, you know, a a kind of movement of assets, as opposed to just the creation of new, new dollars, if you will.
1: Right, there's only one way dollars are creating that is when a a new loan is original. So dollars are traded when people borrow money, they're destroyed as principal payments are made, whether it's part of your scheduled you know, monthly payment or lump sum payment. So was money being borrowed into existence? Absolutely. There's corporations who are out borrowing you know, from the Fed effectively to, you know, then the money was being borrowed or from the banking system. Absolutely. I shouldn't say, but they're borrowing from the banking system. And the banks knew that the, the, these corporations were going to go back and either issue stock or issue bonds. And pay that off but yeah corporations pulled these credit revolvers from the banks and again i want to be clear i did not mean to say that they pulled it from the banks and yeah so you get this all this money created from that plus you have the borrowing from the u.s government and then it's all getting shoved into what's counted under the m2 so all of a sudden we look at this chart and it goes vertical We're like, well, where did that come from hmm. well, from corporations borrowing their credit revolvers and if someone doesn't know what a credit revolver is Think of it like a home equity line that you don't have, that's untapped and you need money. So you go and you pull the money on your home equity line. A revolving uh, line but, of credit. Right. Now all of a sudden money is being borrowed, money is being created. What do you do with it? Well, you deposit your checking account. Bingo. Guess what? M2 goes up.
0: So in essence, these money facilities, these financial facilities were already available to corporations and to, I don't even know even if no regional banks and so on and so forth to be able to, to tap into. So it was already almost... Accounted for and baked into the system before the pandemic ever happened, or yeah, the lines of credit weren't there. And so, what happened is you know, go back to the great financial crisis,
1: the businesses were told by the Fed, Don't worry, we got this, and then you know, obviously they didn't. So, businesses learned their lesson, problems happened, and all they're doing is just pulling their credit lines. I mean, the, the lines were established, they just and maybe they were being used to some degree, but they just went out and said, I'll take everything, okay, I'll take it all, yeah. Because it's not, right? I mean, let's say I go pull money off my home equity. Can I pay it back the next day? Sure.
0: Huh.
1: Right? I mean, I can do that. But what they did is they pulled these equity lines because what was the risk for the corporation? The banks were going like, oh no, things are really bad. We're going to cut your credit line. And anybody who lived through a great financial crisis that had credit knew that banks were going to cut credit lines. And so what are you going to do before they cut them? You better take everything you can get because you can't cut if it's maxed out. Right, they can right. tell you, hey Steve, you know what? Before you could borrow hundred, and you know when you took hundred out, but when you pay that back, the limit's now fixed.
0: Right, but you can't right? go back. And they can't and,
1: make and me go and pay that money back right away. Yeah, so yeah, the they're they not going to just
0: call every loan that's out there. And yeah, okay. I gotcha.
1: Well, and then the Fed came in and effectively backstopped the banks by saying, "Look, we know that you might want to call these loans and all that, but we no, don't no, we'll cover you." So, so yeah, this this borrow. wasn't printed money. It was either borrowed or uh, from non-M2
0: sources or pulled from credit lines. Okay, and so what's the potential outcome of this? I mean, it seems like we're experiencing you know this transitory inflation on certain areas, certain products. But are we going to see long-term like sustained actual inflation, or is that just a bunch of hype that's uh, grabbing headlines? Hype,
1: pure hype. You know, people have told me, like, oh, man, Steve, you're going to see inflation when everyone goes back to work. I'm like, so really? Yeah, I'd love for everyone to go back to work because what's going to happen? All the supply chain problems? Fixed. All the lack of production problems? Fixed. All the people out you know, pulling raw materials out of the ground or you know from trees or wherever they're going to pull from? Fixed. And the notion is, hey, we had full employment before the pandemic. We're getting inflation then. In, so why is it now? Why would going back to work magically create inflation? And the answer is not. Um, hmm. so what we're seeing is a lot of base effects. We're seeing supply chain constraints. We're seeing, you know, resource issues We we're not being able to get stuff out of the ground or where it needs to be. And that is transitory. And part of the reason we're getting such this demand is the government's kind of giving people money at the, really the wrong time. I mean, I, and I know that this is going to be a controversial statement. There are people that absolutely need to buy them. There's no doubt. I mean, there are people that can't pay the bill. But we gave it to people who didn't need to Oh, god, yeah. They spent yeah. It, some of it. And it's really the wrong time. If I'm trying to you know boost aggregate or full aggregate aggregate demand forward, then what I need is the economy to be reopened. And then say, hey, Corey, I'm gonna give you some money. Hey Charles, here's some money, and now watch you guys go out and spend it. I don't want you to spend it when there's constraints in the system because it just drives prices up artificially, mm. suck that money out of the system, and then when it's gone, everything's gonna come back in. And that's what's gonna happen is. And we'll see these base effects on CPI past possibly may we definitely will see them in June and then it started, then the whole narrative is going to change and part of that is also going to be is because of the deflationary effects of quantitative easing, which is something not very many people really believe or understand but I've done a ton of research and what we will see is a return to disinflation and potentially even outright deflation you know, either later this year or next
0: year. Sorry, so outright. I want to get into this right. because I'm curious as well. So, outright deflation or in okay. So, right. well, see, wow, so you're the, calling for deflation?
1: Yeah, well, we actually see the CPI go negative because the quantitative easing is really monetary cancer. It's bad. And a lot of people don't. They think it works exactly the opposite of it does. They think it's inflation and they think it's mind brain. It is entirely the opposite of that, and. There's a ratio we can look at called the money multiplier. You take the M2, the mic slide you know, we were talking about, you can divide it by the monetary base and it's falling. And when it's falling, it tells you there's disinflation. And if it keeps falling, it tells you you're going to get outright deflation. And when you have a lot of debt and you have a weak economy, you have people out of work, oh man, it's going to be bad. News. I mean, it's going to be something that nobody really, I mean, there's a few people that say, hey, this is, this is the outcome. But broadly speaking, not the outcome anyone thinks is going to happen.
0: No kidding. Bit of a contrarian view here, no?
1: Right. Absolutely. It, it, well, and that's what's weird. It's a contrarian view based on absolute facts that I can prove about how the system works.
0: Huh. Wow. It's certainly contrary to what I've heard in a lot of different instances. And you know, I'm also guilty of reading a few too many headlines and not enough articles.
1: <laughs> well, and, and that's kind of where even I, you know, as I went down my macro journey, and you know, I remember when I. When Brent Johnson called me to go on Real Vision. It was it was really a surreal moment. I actually thought he was joking. I told him, but he was like, well, if you really think I'm joking, I can just hang up. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm in because, I mean, my macro journey started, you know, with a commercial, you know, an ad I saw with Ralph Powell talking about Real Vision years and years ago. And I'm like, so it's like, wow, it started here. And, you know, we're seeing this. But one of the things is you, you can go out there and you can find all these great people talking about things. The question becomes is who the people that really knows it the system and there's not very many people There's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of really decent opinions that are backed up on views that are not actually correct. There's a handful of people, Dr. Lacey Hans, Jeff Snyder, and those are the two really, you know, if I want to get into a Richard Werner, Dr. Richard Werner, you want to really get into the plumbing of how things work. There's like, those are the three guys that you need to find their research and you're going to get pieces to the public. They're not going to paint the whole thing and say, here it is. You gotta start connecting the dots and do some more research. But but once you understand how the system really works and what QE does, is designed to lower interest rates, and it's designed to strengthen the dollar. Well, that's disinflationary and deflationary because what it takes to become inflationary is you need money to be created. Well, how do you create money? It comes back to you need lending growth. Well, what happened? Loans and leases, all commercial banks, they're contracting. Hmm. So not only we're not creating money, money's being destroyed because. The year over year aging, loans and leases, is in contraction. Hmm. Yeah, so the outcome is what we're having a dollar short. Have you ever heard of Brian Johnson's dollar milkshake theory? I mean, you're, you're pretty much seeing this in this long extended play of a dollar short and what how that will end is it will end in lower interest rates because, and why lower interest rates? What is this? You know, it's a real simple question, Corey. If I want you to borrow money today, how would I get you to do it? Would I say, hey, I raised rates, or hey, rates are really low at a level that you might not think ever be at this level again. You're like, well, wait, rates are that low? Like, yeah, I, I'll go get some money. You know, if I say hey, mortgage rates to eight percent, you're like, I'm gonna borrow money, man. Are you crazy? So yeah. you know, you need lower interest rates to spur people to borrow. And why do you need a stronger dollar? Well, because you want people who want to spend, you know, how do Americans spend money? Yeah, I know you're in Canada, but it's kind of the same theory well, how do we spend money? We tend to spend it on foreign produced services. Well. You know, how do I stop buying an American produced good? Well, if my dollar's real strong, then that you know, that maybe that German or Japanese car I've always wanted is it. cheaper compared mm. to American good. And not spending money abroad or that vacation. You know, promise well oh, we're gonna go to Europe someday. Well, the stronger dollar makes that possible. It gets dollars outside the US into the global economy. That's really where you see inflation created is dollars really multiplying is, is outside the US, not so much inside the US. So Wow, yeah, the okay. end result is we're going to see this most likely outright deflation. The longer the Fed does QE, the worse it
0: gets. Huh, okay, okay, interesting. So uh, I'm wondering if you can take us in just maybe at a high level. Well, I want to bring it up. We've got a lot of things to talk about, at least yeah. I, I think we yeah. do, but I'm liking where we're going here. Can we talk the differences between kind of quantitative easing and more and more of what I'm seeing about modern monetary theory? And, you know, some people claiming that we're going to become the next Japan of negative interest rates for eternity kind of thing. Broad strokes there, but do you see where I'm going and can you give us some color on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you look at quantitative easing, fiscal stimulus, and whether it's fiscal and giving the money to people, whether it's fiscal in terms of infrastructure, there's
0: not really any
1: relevance between the two. Japan was a pioneer, and they've been doing this for like 20 years. And all we are doing is following on the same path, doing the same things, except everyone thinks we're going to have a different out. it's weird. You know, here, it's like, oh, well, America's doing it. It's certainly going to be inflationary. It's like, we're doing exactly the same thing Japan did. So if you knew nothing else, if you said, look, I don't care how the water flows through the pipes in your house or how the engine in your car works, is look, we're doing the same thing, expecting an entirely different outcome. So yes, we are on a path to have negative interest rates. That's going to be difficult because I don't know how the Fed... Is going to get the funds rate they can't really go below zero they'll do it through quantitative easing but that's really if you look at what we're doing we're doing the exact same thing japan's doing expected a different outcome now the modern monetary theory there one of the challenges is there it's kind of a very broadly termed or used term and i don't really like to so some people think well we're doing it now by giving money to people that ask them not really, in my view, what MMT is. What MMT to me is, is when the Fed is directly monetizing by going to the auctions and actually printing money. They do not have the legal authority to do that. Now, could that change? Sure, Congress would have to change the Federal Reserve Act to allow them to do it, but that's what it would be.
0: So where does basically the government just buying up effectively garbage bonds, one after another just to kind of keep the money is that modern money monetary theory is that where does that fit into this equation
1: okay so when the fed was buying corporate and junk bonds yeah that was the gray area you know i'll borrow a term from dr lacey obviously because hey they they were starting to cross the rubicon you know what and that has been taken away they can't do that anymore i'll actually say why they were doing it is so the fed knew these corporations were pulling all their credit it wasn't easy the fed is very very well they knew what was happening, and they knew that these corporations were going to eventually just issue bonds out to the market to pay those back off at some point. They knew that's what was going to happen. It was easy. They pick up a phone call, CEO, there, and they're going yeah, that's what we're going to do, you know, because the bond market was very conducive to, you know, being able to repay that, those credit revolvers. So the Fed also knew we have a secondary problem, is that if you have a flood of new issuance into the corporate bond market or junk bond market, it can't digest it. It couldn't digest the amount of bonds that were going to be issued. I mean, there's a market for bonds. There are people that buy them, and, but it's only so big. So when you shove all this debt into the bond market, well, what would happen to interest rates, the corporate rates, will they go up? And then what would happen, you start to see some defaults or you start to see some bonds repriced down into junk. Well, then what would happen to junk bond market? It would get, you know, just too big. You know, it's like a bird. You know, if you ever have a bird and you feed it, into a gold. You know, the gold can only get so big because it's got to digest it. Well, hmm. in, in this case, the gold for the bond market, it was, wasn't big enough to swallow all this potential debt that was coming. And then you were looking at having corporate rate surge, junk bond rate surge, and that would be bad. So what did the Fed had to do They had to buffer? And they got away with it for as long as they could. And in toward the end, they, you know, they had their max capacity of like what they could buy, and they weren't even close. I mean, the idea the Fed was even doing a whole lot toward the end when they got, you know, their hand taken out of the cookie jar. I don't think they were buying anything at the end. I mean, they just had that as emergency tool, but that's what they were doing. They were buffering that issue into the bond market because they didn't want to see Rates' quote. Not on the Treasury side, but again, on the corporate junk side.
0: Hmm, okay. Well, I've realized from our conversation here that I have to polish up on my macroeconomics. (laughs) It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, and maybe to wrap up our conversation about the world that you spent a lot of time in, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? And what advice would you have for those business owners out there, and to kind of give them a you know a final touch of what you see coming?
1: Look, look the best opportunity, you know, I mean, businesses. I we talking about earlier, businesses spend a lot of money on marketing. I mean, it's expensive. If I can get clients for free because you went out of business, whose fault was that? I mean, look—you've got customers, right? I mean, it could be as simple as I'm a dry cleaner, and three of my competitors go out of business. Well, does that mean their clients are like, ah, they're going to stop dry cleaning? No. I mean, they're going to need to go somewhere now. Maybe some of those customers went out of business too, or they lost their jobs. But look, there's going to be customers that show up, and so there's going to be—we are in recession. We're not through this. It's going to get worse before it gets better. The opportunity is, do you have the staying power? And a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I've got it now. Look, do you have the staying power? I have government support. Because that there's a limit to how far this could go. Can you stay alive when your competition is going to fail? Because if you can do that, you're going to get so much business without even trying. The word of mouth is low. Just the fact that you're still around is huge when people find out, hey, you're still there. And your clients say, hey, you know, my Steve survived. And he's busy and We survived. And because of that, and they're going to be hey, oh, hanging out with their friends and family. And they're going, oh, yeah, I'm my friend, right. what happened? Oh, we should call Steve. He's still here. You know that's the thing is, can you survive? And if you can, you're going to set your business up for a decade, maybe even longer. I mean, that's the key. Is you know we look at recessions, and it's easy to go back to the dot com bubble bursting and the great financial crisis. We can find all the negative stories. Can you find the stories where people survived and they changed their future? See, I look at recessions opportunities because I can prepare for them. Now I can be wrong, and I'm sure there's people that still like, yeah, you, you've been saying this one for a while and it hasn't happened. Yeah, you're right. I've been wrong. But when it does happen, I will survive. I will be last man standing. And that's gonna be huge for my business. In fact, it may send me all the way through to whatever my, who knows whenever whatever I'm But you've gotta look at the business cycle as opportunities. How do you play the outside and the downside? Because there's ways to do both. Now maybe your business isn't one where you can actually make money during the downside. Stay in business, that's how you make money. How do you, yeah. like all well, boss, do you lay off people, trim staff, trim, like, you know, you learn a lot from people who have staying power. And those yeah. are the people you really need to study. And then you go study the failures. So why did that business fail? Oh, well, they didn't see this coming or that. They, these are all critical things. You know, what business owners don't do is they don't spend enough time thinking about their business. You hear that, right? You should spend more time in your business. Well, what does that mean? Should I go through and file of paperwork? Should I call some people No, i me, you should focus on what's going on with your business, where its future is, what, how are you going to be in business? I always assume. I'm going to either be regulated in business or something. I assume that somehow I'm going to be out of business for a couple of years and I don't want that to happen. So how do I adapt and change to get ahead of that and try to stay ahead of that? Well, there's listening to what my clients say, looking at the industry, looking at the market cycle. What do, you know, what do I have to do to be there down the road? Because I don't have the luxury of, I don't want to restart at my age. And there's some reasons why I can't really restart. I, I have to make this work. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, being out of business, and part of that helped because when I was very early in our industry, one of the things my dad and I faced was a company kept trying to regulate, you know, the type of the subsector of the, the business market we were in. they were trying to get rid of all the independents, and so we faced it every couple of years. A law came, you know, to the state of California, where you get rid of all these people, hmm. a, a one-system plan. And so you start getting to realize is everybody wants to eat your lunch, and if you're not out there figuring out how to eat their lunch, they're going to eat you. And I'm always thinking about like, hey, how can I be lean and mean and, you know, find ways to survive, you know, through the good times, but also, you know, make it through the bad. And I think that's what business owners really need to do. They they need to spend more time on their business and, you know, understand what the cycles are and how can they take advantage of that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's a hell of a lot easier said than done, but... I think when you start to look at things in the long term in three to five year outlooks for, for your business, your career, where you're going with that, taking an hour or two a week to really think through and work on your business as opposed to just continue to just be in it and just you know slogging it out, but actually working on it to build that mode around yourself to be able to sustain the long term is yeah. it's an investment in the future. But I think again, and it, you know i'm I'm guilty of this as well, is thinking in far too short term scenarios like I mean, I was kind of built and trained to to think in a quarterly scenario, what are you going to tell the market? you know if you don't keep the market happy, we're not going to be able to do the next so yeah, a few hours a week,
1: you know, for me, it's as simple as I'll go for a couple walks I'm around my neighbor on the weekend, I generally you know my wife doesn't like the heat that much so she doesn't really want to go with me, which is fine because. It's like, how do I get away from everybody? The phone's ringing, the email, and just have some time to think through some, what's going on. And part of the reason business owners can't do this, they'll say that I don't have the time. But if you start looking at businesses, you'll find out that business owners put an unusual amount of energy into unprofitable parts of their business. Like, mm. they might be working on, like, this is a dream, and, you know, I know this is going to be big, and year after year, into just sucking resources, or it's like, man, we're putting, you know, 50% of our energy into something generating generates 10% of our revenue. Get rid of it. Stop doing it. Yeah. Start spending some time in your business and look at where's your business? What do people like? What do people don't like? You know, it's like you go into, I always say, if I ever owned a restaurant, I would track what people are ordering a lot of, and if something was in the bottom 10%, I would get rid of it. And if people really complain, you're like, I know McDonald's is one of those like, that gets a lot of flat, like, like hey, we got rid of you know, the, the McRib or whatever. I was like, no, 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 we got to have that back. <laughs> but, that's, but as a business owner, that's the feedback I want. So I would constantly be trimming my menu. What's in the bottom 10%? Let's get rid of that and try some new specials. Or let's keep them on there, but try some new things. Wow, the new things are selling better than that. Then those things were gone. You gotta look at your business and stop wasting your time doing things that aren't productive or, are not. I mean, and at some point you say, yeah, you know what? My dream was to do this. And at some point you just have to accept like, look, you spent how many years, give yourself either one more year and get put a timeline down, cutting this off.
0: The analytics there is a big piece. Right. And you know, I think that, um, yeah, it pays to be able to, to really be decisive in that manner. Right. And chop the things that ain't working and, even if it's painful for you on an emotional or a, an ego level, right? So interesting. Yeah, I mean, I
1: have people call me during the pandemic that I met years and years ago for marketing stuff, and they would never become viable. Oh, I want to come in. I need some help with this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Oh, yeah. So what do you mean? But you do it all the time. It's like, yeah, and it, you want to lose some money over me? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we we might be able to talk about that, but that, that's, I don't think that's on the table. It's like, well, I, why am I wasting my time? because that's part of the thing is people in my industry do it is you give away your time, hoping that it will come back to you. Well, if you find out that most of the time it doesn't bring money back, then you stop doing it and tell people. No. Hmm. Or you know, I don't. In fact, I told one person, no, I said, look, or I told her, I said, look, the information you want, is all on my website. But you know, if you're not willing to hire me, I'm not willing to do it. And I sent her an email, you know, cause she's like, well, where do I go look? And I sent her that. And by the way, here's this investment strategy. You know, if you need help, this is something for you. And you know what? Four weeks later, she, she wrote back and she you know, I looked at that. That's sort of really cool. I want to move some money over it. And she actually went and got the answer right off my website. And I'm like, man, how efficient was that? Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of business owners do not look at how they're spending time. So they'll say, well, I don't have time to spend on my business. Yeah, because you're wasting your time. Probably half of your business is the really valuable part and you should get rid of the other half. Just quit doing it. But well, I won't make as much money. You probably make more not in terms of dollar amounts, but in terms of now you have more time to think about how do I take that 50% and make it even better? Or maybe there's some other ideas you have. Yeah. There's some resources into that. I mean, that's really what spending time in your business is. And I think it's one of the biggest ways business owners fail. I mean, hmm. they absolutely fail. And I've run into people that, yeah, I didn't see the industry change or I didn't see this change. And we talk about these dinosaurs, right? You know, like, man, how did that person, not had a really successful business, and just die? Because they never bothered to open the door and look outside and, like, man, what's going on in the world? They thought it never ended. And they just Hmm. kept doing it and they got, you know, they lost clients or lost business. And then eventually it got to the point where it's unsustainable and failed.
0: My conversation with Stephen went long. So we decided to break this episode into two parts. Be sure to keep your eye out and stay tuned for part two as our conversation continues. Otherwise, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.